episode of Season 1 of Pilgrim Talk, Theology for Sojourners. I'm John Sweat, and today I think we've got a very practical final episode for you in this season, asking the question, what is the church's relationship to culture? Is the church obligated to engage culture? And if so, what should the church's expectation be? Um, what, 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 what should the church expect the outcome to be when she engages culture? Well, before we get started, as always, I just want to remind you and encourage you to encourage us by leaving a review. I've been very encouraged over the the span of this first season to see a, a continual uh, healthy growth of um, listeners as I look at some of the statistics of our podcast. But I'd love for some of you to go and make your way over to Apple Podcasts and give us that review or simply share an episode. Friends, I'll tell you, when, when some of you are kind enough to share an episode on Facebook, um, it it boosts that episode tremendously and expands our audience in ways that we really uh, couldn't do by ourselves unless we're willing to drop some money in advertisement, which I'm not really interested in growing a huge following that way. We want to, we wanna, as we say each episode, this is Theology for sojourners and we want to talk about theology in a way that shows the uh, practical importance of those things for the Christian life. But let's jump in right into our discussion and I uh, I would expect that this will be a little bit longer of a conversation but it's a, it's uh, the final episode of the final season. I can do what I want, right? You can always turn it off whenever you uh, would like. But it seems in the West in particular in the West, as liberties and freedoms seem to waste away, as we see some of our brothers in Canada, uh, pastors being imprisoned by a tyrannical government up there, a question is being asked in our churches, what is the church's relationship to culture? And a sub-question to that is, what is the Christian's individual relationship to culture? Uh, certainly this question has been asked um, throughout the history of the church, and various theologians have sought to give faithful answers according to Scripture. But I think in particular in the West, as we are having to face some new difficulties, we are confronted with this question again. There indeed has been a, a comfortability uh, that Christians have had in the West with the culture. Um, and that has now been eroding for some time, but we, we've had the benefit and the curse, I would say. It's both a benefit and a curse for sure of living in nations uh, and in a Western culture that has for a long time basically assumed Christian um, virtues and principles. And so Christians have been overall comfortable in the nations and cultures that, that God has place them in here in the West. But now that's that's no longer the case. And so the question is, I think, being asked again with a a, uh, a bit of more, more urgency. What is the church's relationship to culture? What is the church's relationship to the state, to the kingdoms of men? And what is the church's responsibility to the culture as the culture around her devolves into more and more anti-God values. 
is cultural engagement and cultural transform transformation. The mission of the church is is a form of Christendom. Our goal is that our goal. We want to have sort of a a era of Christendom again. Now, there's been all sorts of answers given to these questions, even uh, even in this past year. And here's a couple of examples of of bad answers. First bad answer to these questions is what has been called theonomy. I call them they're they're holy warriors. Um, everything is holy, and so they're wholly engaged in all aspects of culture. It's the church's mission to transform culture, but in particular, theonomy takes a very uh, well. If they're consistent theonomists, if they're historical theonomists, they take a very uh, particular view on the Mosaic Law and the penal sanctions of the Old Testament. Uh, that's the first bad answer. Uh, the holy warriors is what I call them. But the second bad answer, probably as equally as bad, is uh, pietists. And look, I'm for Christian piety and all those things, and that is used often as a slander against Christians who really want to pursue holiness and want to take seriously the things of God and, the, and, and uh, you know, take seriously the means of grace and all those things. But, but I mean by pietists here, the, the sort of the holy huddlers. So if theonomy is the holy warriors, the pietists are the sort of holy huddlers. They're, they're not wholly engaged. They're wholly indifferent, right? It is, we are closing our church door. Hey, if you're elect, you're going to be saved. The spiritual is all that matters. Um, what happens to our nation doesn't really matter much to us. Um, we are going to be about the Lord's Day worship, and that's about it. And there's much to commend uh, in part in that. Uh, a third bad response, and I don't know, this could be probably lumped up in the second one, but in particular in my context in the United States, there seems to be a whole group of Christians who are, they're the anti-patriots, the anti-nationalists. Um, you're not allowed as a Christian to uh, love your country. You're not allowed to be patriotic with a small p um, and be proud of your country. So there's a whole host of Christians that uh, they'll, they'll be quick to remind you that the kingdom of God is not bound to any nation and no nation is God's nation, never in any sense anymore like the nation of Israel was in the Old Testament, to all of which I say amen. Um, but they're going to be quick to point out that the Christian trying to preserve or the Christian even praising um, God's kindness to their nation and it being founded upon uh, values that closely align with Scripture. I'm not talking about Christendom here. I'm just talking about a nation that recognizes uh, the inalienable rights that God has given to image bearers and having a law and a system of government that seeks to uphold those, they would say, you, yeah, that's not even, you, you can't be praising that, right? America's not the kingdom of God. And again, I say amen to that, but there's there's this group, I think, that wants to dismiss any work of God in a nation, and um, but, but they always dismiss that only to then in turn adopt some other view. So, anyways, arriving at a biblical understanding of Christ and culture, and church and culture is dependent on a proper view of the fundamentals of the faith. Now, I I mean something pretty specific here in the fundamentals of the faith. 
And what I mean is how you answer the question, what is the relationship between church and culture, is largely dependent on a proper view of covenant theology, the law of God, Christ's work, the church's mission, and the Christian's hope. In other words, my point is, is this is not an isolated issue. This is not a, a, a question that, uh, that we can just leave to seminary professors in the halls of theology. But this, this question, the way that we answer this question, touches upon and it is, is grounded upon uh, the very way that we read Scripture and directly impacts the way that we live our Christian lives. In other words, it's not an isolated issue, but it's a core issue because the Christian is a two-aged sojourner, and they're a member of two two kingdoms. They're citizens of whatever earthly kingdom God has placed them in, but they're citizens of a heavenly kingdom. And so the Christian must understand how to travel in the tension between the two ages, between the two kingdoms, and they have to wrestle with how to live wisely in God's world as they wait for their king to return and for the full consummation of the kingdom of God to come. So, but let me just say, just because this is an important issue and it's a vital issue for the church to understand, for the Christian to understand, it doesn't mean that it's a simple issue to wrestle with. We're dealing with uh, a question here that touches a thick web of biblical doctrines and implications. But I think, I think, um, someone might disagree here, but I think there's at least uh, three broad categories that if you can wrestle with these three things, you'll begin to have, I think, a proper biblical framework to then answer the question. And there will be brothers who have the same framework, and they then go to answer the question, and they differ in some ways. But they've got a framework in place to safeguard um to safeguard themselves from answering in the question, answering the question in a way that undermines the mission of the church or undermines the Christian's witness to the world in which God has placed them in. So I, I, covenant theology would be one of those pillars. If you can get a solid grasp on covenant theology and the way that covenants and and, and, and the way that covenant and kingdom interplay throughout Scripture, you're going to see then how culture relates to those things. Also, if you can, the second pillar, get a, a grasp on the work of Christ as a second Adam. And I, obviously Christ came to die for our sins and to bring us into fellowship with God and, and so we can have forgiveness of sins, the righteousness of Christ, and all of those benefits that the New Testament talks about. But I mean Christ's work as the eschatological second Adam, that Christ was sent on a mission to accomplish something that Adam, the first Adam, failed to accomplish. Because if we understand that, that then shapes the way that we understand the church's mission in the world. And third, if you just have a proper understanding of the law of God, how that law functions within the biblical covenants, and how do we understand which laws are sort of transcovenantal? They're not bound to any particular covenant, but the, these laws in particular are transcendent. They are moral. They are the moral law of God that reveal God's character, and they um, continue regardless of which covenant you're in. So just to make this point, if you were to visit San Francisco and begin walking the city without any sort of geographical categories, markers, or a map, 
you would quickly find yourself walking in all the wrong places. In fact, the city's the city's is quite large, and it's made up of hundreds of blocks with lots of different hilly streets, and you would find yourself tirelessly and aimlessly walking up and down those hilly streets, perhaps only to find yourself on a street that you that you uh, don't want to find yourself. In fact, this happened to my wife and I on our second year anniversary. We were in San Francisco, and we just thought, hey, a map. We don't need a map. We'll just sort of wander and go where we want. We've got our phones, and we ended up finding ourselves in a district called the Tenderloin District, only to find out that that is an extremely dangerous uh, portion of the city. And we certainly uh, noticed a few odd things as we were walking through there, only to find out later that it was quite dangerous. But my point, my point with this illustration is, if you try to jump into the discussion of Christ and culture or church and culture, and search for an answer without any biblical boundaries, distinctions, or categories, with no understanding of how covenant theology works, how Scripture um, follows a covenantal structure that that unfolds and reveals to us the kingdom of God, then you're going to then you're going to most likely arrive at an undesired place in your answer, and a place that undermines the mission of the church or undermines your calling as a Christian. In the world, so all I want to do, really here, without getting the particulars of what in particular we should engage in in culture as Christians, or the how-to, if you will, I want to just give us a framework, and then maybe in a later episode we can readdress uh, the how-to more more specifically. But what is what is culture? Let's let's start with that. And here I'm leaning on um, a great book by James Hunter to change the world. The Irony, Tragedy, and Possibility of Christianity in the Late Modern World. It's a fabulous book, a great overview of Christians' view of culture, how we're engaged culture, and overall I think Hunter does a great job at uh, wrestling with this question. But culture is, if I were to give it a, a definition sort of leaning on Hunter here, culture is the ideological and institutional expression of commanding truths and symbols which are formed and guarded by the slow change of history and power. So it's so, you know it's this expression of these commanding truths um, through these symbols and it and culture is is formed and guarded and changed through the 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 movement of history and and through those who uh, have power to shape the culture. And so in other words culture is um, is the macro and the micro. It's the internal and the external expressions of sacred truths and icons, which are mutated by the slow progress of time and the institutions or people of power. And so this, this, this definition of culture is sort of contrary to the popular idea that it's just, uh, it's just religion externalized. Culture is far more complex than simply that, and it's far more complex than just simply the consequence consequences of ideas. But when we think of culture, in particular in connection to the Bible, the covenants of Scripture help us to understand the nature and the goal of culture. And in fact, the two covenants in particular that do this for us is the covenant made with Adam in the garden, in Genesis chapter 1, verses well, really, chapter one all the way through first or through chapter three, and the covenant made with Noah, and we see that in in uh, Genesis 
chapter 8 and 9. But it is these two covenants that help us to understand before the fall and after the fall the nature of culture and how God intended culture to function and what was the intended goal of culture. But but it would be a it would be a, a grave error for us to, for us to either begin with the fall and ignore the original cultural mandate given to Adam or to treat culture as the same after the fall thus ignoring the significance of this event in redemptive history and so there are some views that seek to address this question of Christ and culture, the church and culture, and they begin after the fall. And Genesis 1 through 3 um, has little bearing on their answer to the question. It's almost as, as if um, uh, as if God just created and the fall was immediate and there was nothing before. But there's also those who uh, undermine the fall altogether. They begin in Genesis 1 through uh, three before the fall, but then after the fall, they act as if nothing has changed. So whatever God had commanded Adam and Eve to do in the garden before the fall, the fall unalters that. It doesn't change that. They ignore the fact that there was a covenant there in the garden made with Adam with very specific sanctions, with very specific promises and curses. And though that's been broken, and though all of humanity and creation's plunged underneath the curse of this broken covenant, these brothers just continue right on as if that has no bearing on their understanding of culture. Both of these, I think, are a, a major uh, error. And if you err here, it's very likely that your answer to the question will be um, pretty far off the mark as well. My point here is, is that the original nature and function of creation cannot be used as a paradigm to understand culture's function after the fall. Let me say that again. The original nature and function of creation cannot be used as a paradigm to understand culture's function after the fall. In fact, using the original creation in this way would be like replacing the legend on a map with a legend from a hundred-year-old map before it. So you would be looking at this map, uh, a map that is new, it it uh, it's updated. It has all of the new features and all of those things on it laid out before you. But you took the legend on that map, threw it away, and you went back a hundred years, found a map that was similar, sort of covered the same area, and grabbed that legend and placed it on your new map and expected to be able to navigate what everything is. That is sort of like what we do when we look at the pre-fall situation and we look at culture there. And then we grab it, we yank it out of its covenant context, and we place it upon our context after the fall and say, here's how we're to approach culture. That is a, a covenantal way to read scripture. Theonomists do this when they take the Mosaic law and handle it this way. But creation after the fall is still the same creation God originally made. But Adam's sin has subjected the whole of creation to curse rather than to the eschatological blessing that was offered to him in the Garden Covenant. And so my point is, we have to understand the eschatology of the Garden and the original creation so that, we can so that it can help us grasp what was lost 
what and then then if we understand what Adam lost for us, we then have a far richer sense of what Christ has done for us as the eschatological second Adam. And once we understand that, we then can understand how culture now functions in relation to the church in a post-fall world. So now when we look at look at Adam and look at this Adamic covenant, we see that Adam is placed in this garden temple. And lots of great work has been done on the imagery and the language used to describe the Garden of Eden, all of the parallels and allusions that the temple of the Old Covenant makes back to this garden as a temple. Ezekiel calls the Garden of Eden a temple. and um, But God places Adam in this garden temple, and God clothes Adam with his image. And Adam then is, is God's vice regent, God's uh, image bearer that rules as God's representative over his creation. He gives him authority and dominion over the creation. He gives him the authority to name the creation. And so God has placed Adam in this theocratic space where both cult and culture are one and holy before God. Everything in the garden is holy and all that God has commanded Adam to do is a holy work. And so in submission to God, Adam is to cultivate this creation. He is to cultivate the garden. And we see that not only is Adam placed in the garden as a sort of representative king for God, but he's placed in the garden as a priest in God's temple. He's to Work it and keep it, Genesis 2.17 says. He's to work it and keep it. And that language of, of working and keeping is the same two verbs that are used later in the Old Covenant to speak of the duties of the priest in the Old Covenant. Excuse me, that, that verse I'm thinking of is not 2.17, but it is actually uh, 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You shall surely eat of the tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you should not eat. For in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. But Adam is placed in this garden both as, both as a king and a priest. And so Adam's worship as a priest and his work as a king were covenantally united in the creation mandate that is given to him in Genesis 1.28. So that means that all of Adam's life was religious and sacred. This means even Adam's cultural work was holy and cult-oriented. And so the distinction between cult and culture, the distinction between the holy and the profane, or the sacred and the secular, are not there in the garden. That, that, that is a distinction that arises after the fall. But in the garden, they are united due to the theocratic rule of the great king. And so it is in this covenant, it is in this garden that God has placed Adam, that God has made a covenant with Adam, that through Adam's obedience to the creation mandate, that Adam would merit eschatological glory, eternal life. That Adam would enter into a mutable, an immutable state of being where he can no longer sin or have the possibility to sin. We see this in the 
curse that is given in Genesis 2.17 and by the implication of what God says to the angels after the fall in Genesis 3 um, verses 22 to 23 where it says the Lord God said behold the man has become like one of us knowing good and evil now lest he reach out his hand and also take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken and he drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. We know that Adam wasn't obedient, but instead his disobedience brought forth the curse, brought forth sin and death into creation, ripping apart cult and culture, ripping apart the sacred and the secular. So the key point here is, is that creation and culture originally in the garden, in this covenant that God had made with Adam, originally had an eschatological goal. But sin has rendered man and Adam unable to reach that goal. You see, Adam fell short of the glory of God. And I believe glory there refers not just to the fall, the moral falling of the sin in which Adam committed, but, but the glory that Adam fell short of was the glory that was offered to him in the covenant. And this is why Hebrews 2 speaks of Jesus Christ bringing many sons to glory. But Adam fell short of this eschatological glory that was offered to him through his work. And so then it is moving to the Noahic covenant. It is after the fall that God issued common grace and common curses, showing the amendment to the mandate. Look at the language that follows immediately after when God approaches Adam and Eve after they have eaten of the tree. Listen to the things that Adam, that God says to the serpent. But really, he's speaking to the serpent, but he's also speaking of um, he's speaking of the the mandate that he had given Adam and Eve. In verse 14 of chapter 3 of Genesis, the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now he shifts to the woman, and he says, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing, and pain... You shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and you have eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you, you shall not eat of it, and curse it as a ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So there's there is going to be there is going to be curses now because of the fall. There's going to be curses on creation. There's going to be a curse that accompanies this mandate that was that was given to Adam and Eve. There's going to be frustration and disappointment that accompanies their work to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And as they seek to work the ground, there's going to be thorns and thistles. There's going to be pain and childbearing. There's going to be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. There's going to be hostility and sin between the husband and the wife. All of these things are 
covenant curses that come with the fall, but we also see common graces in the sense that God, after the fall, does not erase creation. He does not totally destroy Adam and Eve and all of creation, but rather he preserves it. In other words, there's still Adam can still work the ground, and there still will be fruit that comes. And there still will be life that comes through the womb of Eve. There will be still a, a being fruitful and multiplying. And there's still a promise of hope that through the woman will come this skull-crushing seed, this one who will crush the great deceiver, the one who had deceived Adam and Eve in the garden. His head will be crushed by this one who will come through the painful birth process through Eve. And so we see common grace and common curses here. And so the creation and the culture are preserved through this common preservation, which is ultimately uh, ultimately solidified in the, in the Noahic covenant in Genesis chapter 9, where God makes a covenant with Noah after he gets out of the ark. And here it is amazing. In Genesis chapter 9, the creation mandate is almost repeated to Noah verbatim from Genesis chapter 1. But there's there's an interesting omission. The command to subdue is left out. No longer can those in Adam, no longer can God's image bearers who are cursed and dead in Adam subdue the creation. We already saw that with some of the common curses mentioned in Genesis three, but not only will the create the, the 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 plants and the vegetation and the food and all of that have thorns and thistles, but in Genesis nine we see that there will be conflict between man and the animals, and not only that, but there will be conflict between man and man, so that God says, if one man sheds another blood, another man. If one man kills another man, then that man's blood will be required of him. Creation and the culture has now been marred by sin. And because of Adam's sin, subduing the creation was no longer possible. No longer could man's work result in eschatological glory. For all men are guilty of breaking the covenant and Adam. Tom Hicks has a, said said this well on 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 Facebook. You know, this is the day of uh, where you find good quotes on Facebook. So this isn't in a book. This is on uh, Brother Pastor Tom Hicks's uh, Facebook wall. I saw it and grabbed it as I was thinking about this episode. He says this about the Noahic covenant. He says the Noahic covenant is not a redeeming covenant. It's not a covenant of grace. Rather, it's a covenant God made with all of creation. It lays down laws and principles common to all human society, including things like marriage and procreation, common enterprise to sustain physical life, civil government based on the punishment fitting the crime. The Noahic Covenant is a covenant of the second table of the moral, natural law revealed in creation and human conscience to stabilize the fallen world which was cursed under the covenant of works. Parentheses here. The covenant of works is what I've been calling the, the covenant made with Adam or the creation covenant. 
Pastor Hicks goes on to say, the Noahic covenant is not neutral because God, God rules it according to his law. Common social institutions, enterprises are accountable to God's second table of the moral natural law. But the Noahic covenant does not give society power over or in the church to defend orthodoxy, punish heretics, or to coerce worship or faith in God. And so this is this would be contrary to what we see much in the Middle Ages with the uh, Roman Catholic Church. This would be contrary to much of what we see advocated for at least classical theonomists. Pastor Hicks goes on, Rather, the Noahic Covenant applies God's law to the shared elements of a fallen and corrupted world until Christ returns. The gospel of Christ alone, by the Holy Spirit, advances, expands Christ's kingdom and rule, not cultural or political institutions. And the church alone is the outpost of the kingdom, not culture mixed with believers and unbelievers. Pastor Tom Hicks does a great job there of summarizing the implications of the Noahic Covenant and its relationship to the kingdom of God. The Noahic Covenant gives us a covenant of common preservation, wherein we see the promise that God will preserve this creation and will preserve the, the, the culture of this world until the coming of our Lord when final judgment will occur. And so the Noahic Covenant is a covenant of common preservation, and it solidifies the permanent place of culture until the full consummation of the kingdom of Christ. And as Pastor Tom Hicks pointed out, all people in the covenant of common preservation, all of creation, all image bearers of God, owe their obedience and love to God by the sheer fact that God is their creator. But they are not members of the kingdom of Christ. No, culture is, is being commonly preserved by God as a vehicle for the kingdom of God. And the preservation of culture is God's means by which he demonstrates his long-suffering as this world awaits its judgment. That's what 1 Corinthians 7.31 and 1 Peter 4.7 is getting at. And so the kingdom of men, which fall underneath the covenant of common preservation, the Noahic covenant, the kingdom of men only deal with the external, and they have no dominion over the conscience or any spiritual reality. The common nature of culture means that the Christian must critically discern culture, for it is neither totally good or bad. Post-fall culture must be seen as a common, temporary, external, and physical institution that is solidified in the Noahic Covenant. And it's important to note the distinction then between Adam and Noah. What you do with Adam and Noah and your understanding of the creation mandate and the relationship between the culture and the church hinges upon your understanding of Adam and Noah. And as we look at Noah, what we see is that no longer does God theocratically rule externally over all the land and all people. And consequently, his presence does not dwell with all men in an earthly sanctuary. That is something that was unique to the covenant of works. That also is, indeed, uh, typified in the Mosaic Covenant, 
which the Mosaic Covenant gives us another picture of a, a sort of covenant of works like covenant that is made with the land of Israel that is very much similar to the covenant that God made with Adam in the garden. But there's a distinction here between how we understand the culture before the fall and how we understand the culture after the fall. And this then means, this then means first, that Adam in the garden had an eschatology before he had a soteriology. In fact, Adam didn't need salvation. Adam, in fact, had been given the promise of eschatological ward by his own work that he was indeed able to do in God's original design in which he had created Adam. Adam was able to complete the work. And yet, after the fall, we need a soteriology. We need to be saved in order that we might reach the eschatology that God intended for man in the garden and the original creation. And so the point is, is that the original eschatological goal for creation hasn't changed. But because of sin, the means have changed. Those in Adam are under the curse and cannot merit glory. They're covenant breakers. But God still requires merit. God still requires work for eschatological glory. Heaven must be earned. But we cannot earn it ourselves anymore. And so this merit, this work, is now attained through the second Adam's work of redemption, whereby the original mandate is fulfilled. It is Jesus Christ who fulfills the cultural mandate, who fulfills the work that Adam failed to fulfill, and brings those who are united to him to the intended goal that was given to man in the original creation. This is what Paul is getting at in Romans 5 and in 1 Corinthians 15. And this is what the writer of Hebrews is getting at in Hebrews chapter 2. Again, that I've already mentioned, but a great text that, that the Son of God is bringing many sons to glory. It is through the work of Christ that the long-promised kingdom of God is inaugurated through the establishment of the new covenant. And so it is the new covenant community who are citizens of this kingdom of God and members of the new covenant. They are a spiritual community, 1 Peter 2.4 tells us. They are, they are uh, sojourners and exiles in, in the kingdoms of this world. They're citizens of a heavenly kingdom. They're citizens of the kingdom of Christ, and they have no allegiance to any human kingdom. Now, indeed, as citizens, they are to be obedient and to give obedience uh, as they are required to do so, as long as they're not breaking the law of God. But their ultimate allegiance is to Christ and Christ alone. And the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God, is not bound to any earthly kingdom. Even the most just and righteous nations that have ever existed in this creation. The kingdom of God is something wholly other and separate from those nations. And it is only those who are united to the Son by the Spirit, and given faith to believe who are members of this kingdom. Right? It is that the kingdom of God is made manifest in the local church, and Christ has given his church a mission to make disciples of the nations. 
And so the command for the church is to go and make disciples of the nations, which involves baptizing and teaching all that the Lord has commanded his disciples to do. The basis for this mission and the power of this mission is found in the universal authority of Jesus. And the abiding comfort for the church in this mission is the fact that the Lord has promised to give us his presence with his church until the mission is completed at the return of Christ. And so the church is to be faithful heralds of the message of the kingdom, which is the gospel, and to call men from all nations to repent and believe in the gospel, for the kingdom of God has come, and our king has come and accomplished redemption for all those who trust in him. This is the mission of the church. This is the mission of the church, not cultural transformation. In fact, in one sense, you could look at the Great Commission as a sort of cultural mandate for the church to make disciples of the of the nations to declare that the new creation has come in Jesus Christ that while this creation and, and while this creation while sinners hearts are blackened and, and ruined by their sin and by the guilt of Adam and while this creation is filled with evil and wickedness Jesus Christ has come to make a new creation and a new people who will forever dwell with him and be in communion with God. And it is so, so it is those who come by the Spirit the faith of the Lord who are then marked with the sign of the covenant and instructed on what the covenant Lord requires, which is alluding back to the Great Commission, baptism and teaching them all to observe, teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded. So the church's mission is primary, primarily spiritual. And by means of her preaching, the sovereign Lord builds his church and adds to the kingdom of Christ. So let me give a few qualifications here. We're, we're about to wrap up here. But just a few qualifications. First, this doesn't mean, when I say that the church's mission is spiritual, it doesn't mean that the church adapts some sort of dualistic philosophy of ministry where the spiritual and the heavenly is all that matters and the physical is a waste of time or evil. The church should, and by church here, uh, I mean more specifically the church's individuals are scattered in the world, though there certainly is a place for the church as uh, uh, the corporate church, if you will, to do this as well. But the church should in a way that does not eclipse, deter, or replace her mission, be engaged in helping meet physical needs and engage the evil in this world. And so loving loving neighbor is more than meeting physical needs, but it's certainly not less than that either. And so we have to love our neighbor, even if it means, hey, there's not going to be an opportunity for a gospel conversation here. There's not going to be an opportunity for me to, to, to declare the message of Christ to this person. Um, but I've got an opportunity to love my neighbor and I'm going to do that. But second, second, this is a, is a important qualifier. All of the, the renovative and restorative blessings of the kingdom, right? New creation, flourishing, all of that peace, all of that comes by way of the legal. In other words, if all of po all the poverty and the injustice and the suffering was alleviated in this world, but the people in our communities are still left outside of Christ, they're still outside the kingdom, 
they're still alienated from God. And, and while they might live with temporary leaf now in this world, they will die in Adam. They will die in their sins and will incur greater judgment and greater torment and suffering than anything they ever received in this life. The gospel of the cross is the fount from which all blessings of the kingdom flow. So again, yes, love your neighbor, help your neighbor. But if that's all you do is meet their physical needs, then you have not loved your neighbor well. You have held back the one thing that they deeply need. They need Christ. They need reconciliation. They need a new nature and a new heart so that they can worship God like they were created to do. Third, I think there's a helpful distinction to be made here as we're thinking of the mission of the church. Uh, A distinction that is not original with me, um, but this idea of the church both as institution and organism or the church both as as gathered and scattered. And what I mean is, as the church gathers on the Lord's Day, and the officers of the church, elders in particular I'm thinking of here, are faithful in, in teaching, teaching the flock all that the Lord has commanded. And as the church itself is faithful in loving one another, and encouraging one another to continue in the faith and uh, 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 speaking scripture to one another and singing scripture to one another, the church then is equipped as disciples of Christ to then, to then be scattered. And then wherever God has providentially placed you in the kingdoms of this world, you're going to be equipped to be salt and light, to engage the culture, to tear down strongholds, to to engage and be a faithful presence of wherever God has you. But it begins with the church gathering. It begins with the corporate church being focused on the one clear mission that Christ has given her to make disciples of the nations. Christ has not given that to, to, to anyone else but the church, and we should focus on doing that. But as we're, as we're discipled, as we're made more into the image of Christ, as we're grown up into the Word by the power of the Spirit, we are then equipped to then go into the world. And wherever we find ourselves engaged as pilgrims, we can take, then take the gospel and bring it to bear on that in that place, on that situation. We can bring it to bear as we are loving our neighbor both in word and deed. So as we're sort of wrapping up here, let's talk about a few of the implications of our what, what our expectations should be as we engage culture, right? My assumption here is, yes, the church uh, as the scattered body should engage culture, right? The church should speak truth in the public square in whatever way they can and the place in which God has placed them. Um, and Christians are called to do that in different ways. But but the church is not called to transform culture. The church is not called to make Christendom great again. Um or anything like that. And so first as we as we've looked at the the role of culture and and the way that it functioned in the Adamic covenant and the Noahic covenant, first I would say culture cannot be equivocally Christian. And what I mean by that is, um, we 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 can't just say, well, uh, so I'm a plumber. That that's what I do for for a living. 
Um, I could say I'm a Christian who happens to be a plumber, but I don't do Christian plumbing. Um, in other words, as I'm working, maybe I'm working alongside another plumber that I know is not a Christian. Him and I are going to read the plans the same way. If we understand our job well, we are going to uh, going. We're going to understand the plumbing code the same way. We are going to, um, for the most part, do all of the tricks of the trade the same way. Obviously, there's things we would differ in just by nature of two different trade workers. But my point stands. We would do plumbing the same way. Now, obviously, as a Christian, I hope that I would be doing my work to the glory of the Lord. I would be doing my work with a high sense of integrity and trustworthiness and honor because I'm doing it for Christ. But that doesn't make my plumbing Christian. I'm a Christian plumber, right? And I want to do plumbing in a way that magnifies the name of God and glorifies God. But culture is, cannot be equivocally Christian. Certainly, uh, the believers approach culture from a Christian worldview under the Lordship of Christ and to affirm in, affirm in culture only what is good, true, and beautiful according to God's revelation. Um. The Christian can affirm and enjoy what is good in culture, but this does not make the culture Christian. There's certainly, a, on the flip side, there's certainly a positive argument that can be made that there is a sort of Christian culture inside the gathered body of the church on the Lord's Day, right? Because there is a new culture there. There's a new creation there. There's, there, there's something in the community of saints gathered on the Lord's Day in a in a body of believers that have covenanted together in membership. There's something that should be unique there and, and um, otherworldly there that is totally contrary to anything that can be found in this world, in this culture, that is totally contrary uh, to anything that can be found in other friendships with non-believers. So, so yeah, leaving that argument aside, yes, there, there is a sort of a culture, a new creation culture in the church, if you will, a picture of the new creation. But um, that's still different than arguing um, in in a way that some do that we're to that, that Christians are to take back culture, or they're to Christianize culture, or to transform culture. Again, one more, I'll just give one more caveat. It doesn't mean you don't do things well, and it doesn't mean you don't do things in a in a in a way that uh, that. Uh, holds out Christian values or Christian a Christian ethic or anything like that or 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 indeed Christians should because we have a real understanding of the 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 true and the good and the beautiful because all those things are rooted in God and and who and who God is we should uh, we should make some of the most beautiful pieces of art and we should be those who magnify the things that are truly good in this world and and we should be able to adore and uh, behold and enjoy things that are beautiful in this world. But uh, there's still not a, uh, we can still can't look at culture and just equivocally say, oh, that's, that's Christian. We can say, oh, Christians are the only ones who consistently enjoy these things. Sure, because we recognize that they are good gifts that come from our creator and they point us back to worship our creator all the more. Uh, a second implication here in our expectation um, one's expectation of transformation of culture should be governed by the function of culture. In other words, culture will be transformed at the coming of Christ when it is joined again with the kingdom of God 
But in this present culture, in this present evil age, culture is common and it's relegated to the Noahic Covenant and all it is is a means to preserve the creation as the kingdom of God flourishes and grows. So no, we're going to not take back Jacksonville, Florida for the kingdom of God. No, we're to be faithful witnesses to the kingdom of God in Jacksonville, Florida, declaring that the king has come, declaring the message of the gospel. And you know what? As Christians, as people are saved, that's going to change the way that it lives their lives. But the reality is, if we understand the parables of Jesus, the kingdom, both the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world grow simultaneously at the same time. Third, third implication, no kingdom of this world can be ever called Christian. The only exception of that was theocratic Israel. No nation ever, ever again has ever held that position. And no, the modern state of Israel does not hold that position and will not hold that position in the future. That is contrary to the redemptive flow of Scripture and the very nature of the way our Lord describes the kingdom of Christ in John's Gospel in the 18th chapter. So, so nations may be built on, on biblical principles. They might be guided by biblical laws. They might be governed by Christian men and women. But this does not make that nation Christian. And it's a great error to confuse a temporary kingdom with the kingdom of Christ. And this is getting back to the introduction. I'm, this doesn't mean that we can't celebrate nations that do uphold those values. And nations that were built upon Christian values. But we need to make sure that our joy and our hope are appropriately measured and that we don't actually move into a real version of patriotism or nationalism that is idolatrous. So that might include, by the way, you having uh, almost like a Washington Memorial-like flag stand out in front of your church with all these different flags for different things that are nation, right? Like that's, that's a problem. But let's conclude here. Let's conclude here. So there are two kingdoms which are codified in two covenants, the kingdom of God and the common kingdom. The kingdom of God is holy and it's set apart unto God for worship. It is a new covenant community of believers. But the culture is part of the common kingdom, the kingdom in which all image bearers are under, which was made with all of the creation in the Noahic covenant. And so, indeed, Christ rules over both. He rules over both kingdoms, the kingdom of grace and the kingdom of providence, or the kingdom of God and the common kingdom. God rules over both, and his, his truth and justice is the ultimate standard over both. The kingdom of common preservation is Christ's rule over the world in total, but the kingdom of Christ, uh, the kingdom of Christ is his special redemptive rule over the gospel church of the new covenant. And so, I would just say the one of the foundation arguments for this distinction between the kingdom of God and the and the common kingdom or the kingdoms of this world is found in John eighteen thirty six when Jesus tells Pilate that very thing: "If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting." And Abraham Booth, in his tremendous essay on the kingdom of Christ, says this: He says this capital saying, speaking of John eighteen thirty six. This capital saying may be considered as the grand maxim upon on which he formed his conduct when among men, 
and it is pregnant with needful instruction to all his disciples, respecting the new economy, meaning the new covenant, in the Christian church. Relative to matters of that kind, there is there is not perhaps a more interesting passage in all the New Testament, nor one which is better adapted to rebuke the pride and carnality of millions who bear the Christian character. To approve of Christ as a spiritual monarch, agreeably to the meaning and tendency of this emphatical text, requires a degree of heavenly-mindedness which comparatively few possess. To that I give an amen. And Abraham Booth there drops the blow on many Christians today who truly do not have a heavenly mindedness or understand this text in a way in which upholds the very nature of the kingdom of God that we see revealed to us in the Gospels and throughout the New Testament. But Christian, as you think about the answer to this question, as you feel the difficulty of being a two-age sojourner, as you feel the tension of the already and the not yet, of belonging to an earthly kingdom here, yet owing your ultimate allegiance to a heavenly kingdom. Know this, the Christian hope remains unshaken, no matter what happens in the culture. The kingdom of God will grow and will not be stopped, no matter how hard the kingdoms of men push back against Christ's church and the gospel. Nations will come and grow, go, but Christ's kingdom will not be shaken. So Christians, we engage the culture. We engage first by being focused on the mission of God that he has given this church. And second, by, by seeking to be, uh, to be faithfully present wherever God has placed us. But we do it with confidence and certainty. We're not in a frenzy. We're not in a panic. There is no fear or lack of safety that can shake us. Comfort may go. Our rights may go. Our liberties may go. But God's word is sure and God's kingdom will stand and God's church will prevail because God is working through the preaching of his word, through the proclamation of the gospel. And as Revelation says, through men and women loving not their own lives, but loving Jesus Christ and giving their lives for the cause of the gospel. So may we think carefully about this question and may we remember the mission that Christ has given to his church. Thank you.